God loves our community, he loves our neighborhood that we live in, and, and he's placed you in a neighborhood, he, he uh, loves the people that are neighbors of you, and uh, I don't know, I, I go, how often do we get a chance to open our doors and welcome kids, and, and uh, let's continue to take these opportunities where even in the name of darkness in some ways, Halloween can be, um, it's pushing neighbors together, and uh, let's seek to be light in dark places. I think that's what Jesus would be doing. And uh, let's keep praying. Let's be praying for uh, what God wants to do in our community. I, I just sensed this weekend uh, he's got better visions than we could ever have for our neighborhood. So that's, that's, uh, that's an extra this morning, but I just, uh, it's been a burden on my heart this week. So she kept trying to go into people's houses. That's just, well, it's, it's like the whole deal where you don't offer the kids to choose their own candy to the bowl because they just go like this, right? They do the whole, you know, that's good. That's good. That's all right. You get to know your neighbors in a whole new way. It's awesome. Um, one of the, uh, the coolest uh, Halloween costumes I saw yesterday was just because I was, uh, my, it, it tied in with my first illustration this morning, um, was a little tiny girl, probably about four years old, and she was dressed in the outfit that I always wanted to be growing up. She was dressed as an astronaut. And they got cool outfits now, those orange, you know, Chris Hatfield kind of outfits that, that are really cool. I don't know, anyone else wanted to be a, an astronaut growing up? I mean, uh, there's a couple, right? There's a few of you out there, nerds like us. And then I realized I really didn't have an aptitude for science. <laughs> and apparently that's like a, an important thing. Mathematics and science are kind of like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a pastor. That's what I'm going to do. That's a pastronaut. I like that, a pastronaut. Very good. Well, I, I came across an interesting story this week about an astronaut named Pogue. You, you might have heard of him. In 1974, Colonel William Pogue became the first astronaut ever to go on strike in space. Uh, Colonel Pogue was part of the longest and last manned mission on the Skylab space station, kind of one of the first big space stations. And about halfway through the 84-day mission, Colonel Pogue and the, the other astronauts uh, they contacted ground control and asked if they could have more time in their schedule for rest. I kind of always envisioned the astronauts are up there kind of doing their own thing, but apparently they are, uh, they are tightly regimented. And uh, this is what Pogue said. We'd been overscheduled. We were hustling the whole day. The work could become tedious and tiresome, even though the view was spectacular. <laughs> well, what happened? Ground control refused. The work was too important, they said. Time was, was limited. Uh, some of you can relate to that. Some of you have bosses like that. You can start calling them ground control. That's what you could do. But they worried that the astronaut's request was a sign of depression or illness of some kind. And, and Pogue insisted that this wasn't the case. They just wanted more time to reflect and, and look out the window and think. And, and eventually the disagreement became so intense that the astronauts actually went on strike for a brief time. So finally they came to a compromise. What do you do? They're out there. They're... <laughs> Well, okay, you can have some time off. <laughs> Sick leave. Uh, they, gave, they gave them some, some time to rest during the remaining six weeks of their flight. 
And uh, Pogue later wrote, he said that, that having more time to look out the window at the sun and the earth below made him reflect more about himself, uh, about his crewmen, about their, their human situation, instead of trying to operate like a machine. And I think, how true. How uh, often uh, we think of ourselves not as human beings, but human doings. We, we kind of operate like machines. And, and we're in this series right now on emotionally healthy spirituality. And we're trying to marry together these two ideas of, of emotional health and then contemplative spirituality and how when we practice those two together that they lead to wholeness and they lead to health and they lead to, to life transformation. Who doesn't want that? To live a, a good life, a grounded life. And so today we're going to talk about discovering this kind of daily rhythm of, of life with God. Um, really the key word here is, is rhythms, discovering the rhythms of life with God because our culture actually seems to know nothing about rhythm, right? I mean, it's not just got ground control in the 70s who got this wrong. We live in what, what has been called a 24-7 world. That's, a, a, that's a, a term that's been coined just in recent years. We, we're all going 24-7. Things just go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next. It's, it's kind of nonstop. And, and, and everybody's in a hurry. Everybody's busy, and everybody's complaining about it. But they have no idea how to change it. How do I get off this merry-go-round? Nobody sets out to this and decides that I'm going to have my, my life marked by chaos, and yet too many of our lives are marked by chaos. It just kind of happens to you where you go along and boom, you're, you're, you're in it. And, and so the words that describe our culture are words like scattered or, or fragmented or, or distracted or, or just people are, are overloaded. And so instead of being where we are, are in the present, in the now... Everyone seems like they're on their way to something, don't they? <laughs> they're going somewhere. We're, we're kind of swallowed up by this culture that we live in. It's epidemic. I mean, isn't this true for the people you know, for the most part? Um, Dr. Susan, Susan Coven practices internal uh, medicine at a prestigious hospital in Boston. And she recently wrote her observations in the Boston Globe. This is what she says. She says, in the past few years, I've observed an epidemic of sorts. Patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, and yet it's easy to recognize the condition is excessive busyness. It's an epidemic, this life of busyness. And so the issue is, how do I get off that merry-go-round? How do I live a, a centered life? How do I, I live a, a life that's orientated around God? Because we, we, we're gonna have, we are not going to have a, a relaxed and restful and contented life without God. We were made to have, each one of us, to have this deep connection to the living God. That's where our life was made to have God in the middle of all things. But it's very difficult for that to happen when our culture just has its hook in us. And so somehow we've got to stop and and we've got to pause, and we've got to slow down to be with God on a, a daily basis. And this is our kind of great task that we have before us today. So this morning, I'm going to introduce you to a spiritual discipline that is a deliberate attempt to structure our lives, to slow down, to, to pause, and be with God. Peter Scazzaro calls this, it's been called this for centuries, actually, the daily office. 
And I'll explain what he means, but it's really about giving each of us a, a rhythm throughout our day. Scazzaro also talks about the, the other very important rhythm we've talked a fair amount here at Hillside is Sabbath, practicing Sabbath. And that's actually thinking about a weekly rhythm, that one day in seven you'll take a day of rest, a, a snow day as my wife likes to call it, where you don't have to do anything, but you get to be with God and you get to rest. But this morning we're, we're going to very specifically talk about this daily peace. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to, to Daniel chapter 6. Uh, Daniel, you find he's after Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He's back there in the, the, the back part of the Old Testament. But we're going to look at Daniel 6, verse 10 and, and following, where it says this. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Let me read that again. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? All right, let's pray together. So Lord, uh, this morning... I think we're all agreeing in our hearts that we don't want to be captivated by our culture and living out of sync with how you made us. And we want this rhythm, and in a way we don't know how. So God, we ask, actually give you permission this morning to, to change our minds about how we live. And uh, Lord, we ask you to reorder our lives, God, to give us a new rhythm that would be centered around you and that would be life-giving and right for our world. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. It's uh, just true how busy modern life is. It's, it's been compared to a treadmill. And you know the thing with a treadmill is uh, it's one thing to get on the treadmill. <laughs> it's another thing to safely extricate yourself from a treadmill, especially if it's going at high speeds. And we've got all these things going on in our life. I mean, think about it at work and, and kids and family and, and laundry, our pets, and there's exercising and shopping, and it goes on and on. And then we've got kind of this little circle over here for God. We've got all this stuff going on, and then there's this little circle. It's kind of like out of balance, right? God, he gets in there sometimes, but, but our life feels out of whack, and it's unhealthy because it doesn't balance being with God with, with this doing life. But what's been imprinted to us, uh, all of us, I think, in our, our Western culture is that, that it's bigger, better, and faster, it's kind of like part of our DNA. It's got to be bigger, better, and faster. And, show us a, and to show us a way to get off this uh, speeding treadmill, as big as it is, as fast as it's moving, we're going to look at Daniel in Babylon. I, I think this is a helpful image for us because when we reflect on it a, just a little bit, it's like we're all living in Babylon. It's kind of an image of our day. Um, looking at the exiles of Israel, they were, they were living in Babylon, and Babylon was trying to imprint itself on them, on, on Daniel. And what I love about Daniel, we actually named our, our second son, his middle name is Daniel, first name is Noah. And, and both Noah and Daniel were, were both men of God who stood apart from their times. They were distinct from their culture. And yet, Daniel became a huge gift and a huge blessing to the culture that he was in, and ended up pouring out blessing on the world around him. And God is calling us out of our Babylon to be a people distinct with God so that we can be a gift and so that we can be a blessing 
to the world around us. But you have to come out of the world, out of the culture, to be able to give something back to the culture. So we're going to be looking at, at Daniel for just a few minutes this morning, and then we're going to hear from someone who's been seeking diligently for quite a few years, trying to live out a rhythm of life with God. I want to talk to somebody and, and give you kind of a living example. And then we'll close with a time this morning of practicing this fantastic discipline of silence and solitude. And uh, we're going we're to do that just at the end. So let me begin with this, this fixed office prayer, or what has been called daily office, which comes out of our text in Daniel. So Daniel, at, a, at about the age of 17 to age 20, is, is carried off from his home in Israel. He's carried off to a foreign land. He's carried off to, to Babylon. His people were just about wiped out from the Babylonian armies. The, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. The place was kind of leveled. So Daniel finds himself not at UBC, but at U of B. You know, the, the University of, of Babylon, getting his undergrad in what you might call pagan studies or something like that. And there he is. He's, he's learning Babylonian thinking and, and ways and, 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 you know, math and medicine and myths. He's learning astrology. He's learning about their gods. They immerse him in all things Babylonian, even giving him a, a Babylonian name. He, he had been Daniel. They called him Belteshazzar. And Babylon has has really just one goal for Daniel. They want to cleanse the living God from this guy. They want to cleanse it out of him and make him fully Babylonian. And they even go as far as to make Daniel an advisor to the king. He kind of ends up becoming the secretary of state. Quite clear God was involved in that appointment. Now this is a kind of a great image because this is what happens to us in our land, in our culture. Babylon in the Bible, represents the world. We, we find it specifically referred to in the book of Revelation, where it's even described as the beast. And sometimes our culture feels like a beast. And, and if we look around, we, we live in a culture that basically wants to make us Babylonian. The, the culture is just out to, to suck from us any trace of, of the living God and anything that is true inside of us. And once those, those traces of God are removed... Our, our, our thinking, our, our way of being, our, our decisions, our values, our, our, our relationships, the way we view the world is Babylonian and not of God. And that is what, what is happening to, to Daniel. Daniel would have been under immense pressure where he was. I mean, think about what he was going through. It's interesting um, because in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, as I said, Babylon is pictured as this, this great prostitute looking to have sex with believers and to drink the blood of the saints and absorb us into her. That's the picture in Revelation. And behind this intoxicating Babylonian prostitute are, are actual demonic powers. And, and it's a very real image for us because many of us, as we look at our lives, it feels like that, doesn't it? Doesn't it sometimes feel like everything is coming against our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? There are real there's real opposition to that. So here's Daniel. He, he's living in Babylon, which has now become Persia. And, and he's got a big job, this, this key advisor to the king. He's got a lot to do. He's very, very busy. He's, he's also alone. He's got very little support around him. And uh, there's, there's real problems in his workplace. I mean, envy and, and jealousy kind of abound. There's workplace politics. Some of you can really relate to that. Somebody told me about losing their job this week 
because of workplace politics. And, and people are out to see Daniel fall. And they actually devise a way to see him unseated from his position. The king makes a decree that anyone doesn't bow down to, to him and, or, and bows down to any other god, they would be thrown into the lion's den. And there it says in verse 10 that, that three times a day, Daniel disobe- disobeys this decree. And we learn something about his life through this. It says three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. It was his custom, as it says in other translations. Last week, we talked about Jesus being flat out on the ground in the garden, praying to his Father. And here, Daniel is on his knees, praying to his Father. And and our posture says something about what is going on spiritually inside of us. And and here's Daniel, who has this lifelong habit of spending time with God, not just once a day, but, but three times a day at least. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I grew up in, in a Christian family and a Christian environment, and I was taught growing up that it was important to spend a quiet time with God every morning, like reading the Bible and praying, and it was kind of like an anchor point, and you needed to do this to have a good Christian life. In fact, as I became a Christian leader later on, I, I found that one of the ways you were to measure whether a Christian was a good Christian or not was, were they having this time regularly in their life? And we kind of judge those who, who didn't seem to be able to get their act together to get up in the morning and spend time with God. And uh, there's those morning people out there going, I can't even talk to myself, let alone another, another you know, deity or anything like that in, in the morning. That's just how you're wired. Um, but but some, some have really struggled with this whole idea. But this daily office or, or daily custom, I'm coming to believe, has a much greater, much larger impact to it than what we traditionally call devotions or, or quiet times. It's got enough punch to actually to slow us down, to stop, to help us to be with God and to pause for Him. Uh, office in Latin literally means work of God, which is the reason that the name daily office versus quiet time or devotions is used. It makes a distinction that in my office, my, my work is to seek God. My work is to be with God. That's the first work of all of us in this room. It comes out of Psalm 27.4 where David says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Do you remember remember that verse? It continues that that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my life and and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. David says, that is my work, to seek God. And, And an office is about being with God, not getting from God. And, and many of us, I, I think, we, we think we're going to spend time with God, and so we get the Bible out, and we're trying to read it a lot, and, and that's good. And then, of course, we have to pray for all the needs around us, and they're plentiful, and so we pray, and at the end of it all, we're just kind of feeling exhausted. That time has been work. It's not been so much about being with God and communing with God and seeking God, but about getting something from God, to get things done, or... Or maybe as it, as it has been for seasons of my life, it was kind of fulfilling a, a Christian obligation. This is what Christians do, and this is a duty I have to fulfill and, and in order to go on with my life and prosper. For us, an office is simply to seek God. Do you sense that shift here? So that's why regardless of your profession, whether you're a pastor or a social worker or a counselor, a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a mom at home, it doesn't matter. We all have the same job. 
our very first work is to seek God, to be with God. That's, that's our work. So if, if you change jobs, you've not changed your primary job, which is to be with God. That's what an office is. My first work is, is to seek Him. That's my first work in my life. By the way, having a, a rhythm like this, inserting pause points into our life, has been affirmed in the medical field. Um, read an interesting study this week. In, in recent years, uh, the surgeon Atul Gawande has urged doctors to use specific checkpoints during procedures, specifically surgery, in order to save lives and to reduce mistakes. Gawande's uh, surgery checklist included the following three pause points. A pause point before anesthesia, before an incision, and before leaving the operating room. And each pause point is designed to last no more than a minute or, or two, just long enough for members uh, of, of the surgery team, the nurses and the doctors, to, to actually consider, have we done things right? Uh, uh, for instance, one of them is, is just to think, before actually starting the procedure, have we got the right patient? I love that. I think they must have had that at RCH when I was there. They checked my name tag repeatedly. Is this the right guy? And I'm glad they did. And then, then at the end of the surgery, checking to make sure you haven't left anything that you weren't supposed to inside of the patient. I think that's just a good checkpoint as well. Now, they, they, they actually count sponges and count all the equipment that they have in the room. They're going, we're missing something. Let's open them up. Now, it might not seem like pausing for a few minutes would make any difference, but the results are striking. Even short pause points slow down the tempo of the surgery, and guess what? Slower tempos led to better outcomes. Uh, for, for example, starting in the spring of, of 2008, eight hospitals began using Gowanda's checklist and pause points. Within months, the rate of major complications for surgical patients dropped by 37%, and deaths fell by 47%. Isn't that simply something? I mean, simply inserting pauses and moments of reflection is saving lives. And it's true in our life with God. In inserting regular pause points, this, this daily office, these, these simple disciplines can keep us connected to God, which I'd say for us can be a life-saving saving rhythm. And that's really the point of the discipline of daily office is to, to, to learn this and cultivate this awareness of God, this this idea that God is present with us all through our days, to develop this consciousness of God in whatever I am doing. The word in, in Scripture says that we are to, to pray unceasingly. And some of us have that idea that that is all about this ongoing dialogue where I'm talking to God, and that sounds exhausting again. What it really is about, praying unceasingly, is just to be aware and acknowledge that He exists. You know, in, in our uh, family prayer times, uh, we, we pray before meals, and uh, I've I found sometimes that we just go into autopilot. Our kids just say words that they've memorized. Give us, thank, Lord, we thank you for this food. Blessed It's actually funny. In my office one time, I asked one of our staff members to close our staff meeting and, and, uh, with prayer, and that person just begins, Lord, we thank you for this meal. We're about to... <laughs> So sometimes, actually, you have to pause and think about what you're saying. And, and so recently, I've felt like, for us as a family, sometimes it's been more effective than, than us saying words of thanks for food that we're eating. I've just invited our family to, to stop, and I've said these words, Lord, we just acknowledge right in this moment that you are God. 
And that's all we do. God, in this moment, we acknowledge that you are here. And, and it's amazing how this sense of the sacred comes into that meal, more so than sometimes where we've gotten the words right. And, and so praying unceasingly is really about cultivating this consciousness, this awareness of the, the presence of God, and so that we stop and we pause during these moments of the day so that when I'm active, when we are busy doing our things, we're still aware of his reality, of the, the reality of God. We see this, by the way, in more than just Daniel. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it in, in David's life especially. For example, David wrote this psalm, uh, Psalm 119, 64. He says, seven times a day I praise you. David had some kind of rhythm going on as a king when he was active, but he stopped to praise and to worship. He wrote things like Psalm 92. It, it is good to praise the Lord, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. He had some kind of rhythm that, that included the morning and the evening. And then in Psalm 55, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. And it's very interesting as you, you look at the Psalms, it has this very rhythmic praise and worship and crying out to God that David was engaged in. And we know the Jews, by the time of Jesus in the first century, they had, they had morning and midday and evening prayers, written prayers that they would pray. And scholars tell us that it was very likely, most scholars agree, that Jesus would have participated in that practice. Jesus would have been praying these morning, midday, and evening prayers. It was something that carried on into the early church. Uh, bishops and leaders in the early church urged people to pause mornings and midday and evenings, building this office, building this, this habit into their lives. And later on, we know that actually they did this kind of crazy thing in towns. Well, I don't think we could get away with this today, but they would have church bells ringing at certain points in the day. And the church bell, you'd pause in your work. If you were a, a farmer, you'd pause, and you'd remember that there was a God. And it was an, an, an invitation to pray and to be with God. And the Psalms have been the, the prayer book of the people of God for, for 3,000 years, really. And this may be helpful to, to you, and it's been helpful to me as part of your office, reading psalms throughout your day. Uh, they're prayers, and they're, they're great prayers to participate in. But with the daily office, you, you really go at your own pace. And, and every office is different. It's not so much what you do. It, it, it's not even how long it is. The point is, is to include two elements. They're simply scripture and silence, or silence and solitude, as I like to call them. Now, it can be that, that an office is different for every person in this room because God is, is coming to us in, in so many different ways. I, I know somebody who, who their office, uh, their midday prayer, looks like them getting out of their office, their actual office, and being in creation for a few moments of solitude and silence. And they just go out. It doesn't matter what the weather's like. They go out into the elements, and they remember there's a creator, and they look at the beauty of nature, and they remember there's a God, and they take moments to just be with him. Uh, your practice can be a, a little bit more legalistic than that, but the issue is not what you do, but it's just getting to be with God in two things. Some communion with him in scripture and the other practice which we call silence. And, and this is what uh, I think in particular makes the daily office so revolutionary and relevant in our day is we've lost this discipline of practicing silence in the church. We really have. I, I'm talking about silence, not just about being quiet, but I'm talking about being still so that we can be aware and, and know the presence of God so that I can know him. Kierkegaard, he was a prominent theologian in the 
of the 19th century. He wrote this as one of the last things he entered into his journal before he died. He said, if I could only prescribe one remedy for the ills and problems of the modern world, I would prescribe silence, because without silence, if the word of God is proclaimed, it can't be heard. There is too much noise. So I prescribe silence. And then there's the profound lyrics of the Bruce Coburn song. Somebody sent this to me this week. Uh, Sometimes you can hear the Spirit whispering to you, but if God stays silent, what else can you do but listen to the silence? What What does God really want from us? He wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. Even if nothing else happens, I'll just have silence. And that's the primary aim in this daily offices, having these kind of pause points throughout the the day that include these intentional moments of of Scripture and silence. Now, I say all this and say this is easier said than done. It requires kind of an an intentionality about it. In fact, I've had to get really intentional as I've sought to practice this in my own life. I've I've taken what sometimes has been a distraction from my life with God, my my telephone, my, my mobile, and, and I've actually programmed into it reminders to have morning and midday and, and afternoon prayers. And it's, it's right in there, and I get a reminder on my phone. So that Actually, I see it right on my, on my front page, and I pause, and I take those kind of moments. Another thing I've done is that whenever I notice, and I don't always notice, but whenever I notice it's the top of the hour, so a minute to, to, to one, or a minute to two, or a minute to three, I pause just for even 30 seconds, and I try to direct my thoughts heavenward, just whenever I have those moments. Another practice I've tried is, is, uh, is before meetings. I'm going to be meeting with somebody. Maybe it's to counsel someone, or, or it's a, a, a planning meeting, or whatever it might be. I try to take three or four minutes to be in God's presence. And what I found is, as I take those moments to be in God's presence, I'm better able to be present with that person and be mindful that God is there with us too. It's been very, very helpful. It's been a challenge, and and I'm going to say it's very, very uh, hard to do because we are so easily distracted. We have a hard time practicing silence, but I think this is something God calls us to do, to build this mindset of God with us all the time. Now, to help us think about this, I wanted to give you a living example this morning, and I'm going to invite up Arthur Clausen. Uh, Arthur was playing guitar this morning, and Arthur and I have chatted about this. He, uh, he has sought to, with some success and some failure, he sought to build some rhythms into his life, and I, I'd like to interview him. He's going to be our illustration today. So, Arthur, thanks for coming up here. Sure. Welcome. Um, I want to back up before we even get to this question this morning and, and say, Arthur, when was the first time or how did you come about to the place where you knew of the reality of God in your life? Okay. Um, I can't quite remember a time when I didn't know there was God there. And I was raised in a Christian home, um, and you know, I learned to say the sinner's prayer at a really early age. Um, but for me, discovering God more and more has been about seeing all the places where the church didn't necessarily say God was, but he was there too. He was there between Monday and Saturday. Um, I heard about the apostles, and I heard about the Reformation, and then I heard about now. And so understanding that, that God was at work from 30 through 1500, mm. and from 1530 right through to now, and it's, it's an unbroken tapestry. 
uh, to see that God speaks even through poets and philosophers. I mean, to call Kierkegaard a, a theologian is a bit of a stretch. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, God spoke through him. God speaks through Sting, for pity's sakes. You know, um, but just to see that God's at work everywhere. Uh, and to acknowledge when it's, it's half there, it's only half there, but it's all like the whole, it, it's, it's one piece of unbroken tapestry, front mm. to back. Uh, quickly, I've heard you call God Papa. Uh, as part of your prayer life, you, you uh, often refer yeah. to him as Papa. Why is that? How, how did that emerge? I wrote some things up because I tend to wander, so I'm going to stay focused here. Um, so, I guess the tipping point came when Josiah was born, and I found myself talking to him all the time, just communicating, telling him I love him, you know, talk, talking about this happening, talking about that happening, and I was changing his diaper one morning, and God just pulled me up short and said, you know how you're, you're always talking to him? Yeah. And you know how you know, you're telling me you love him and you're expressing care to him? Yeah. Well, I'm doing that to you. I'm talking that much to you. You just can't hear it. And uh, yeah, after getting up off the floor with that one, that was sort of, you know, stick that in your pipe and smoke it for a while. Um, That's good. Further off, I guess the way the Bible's translated, God doesn't have a name really. He has titles. God. Lord. Okay, I'm not sure if you've noticed in your Bible, but there's sometimes Lord is capitalized and sometimes it's all capitalized. Okay, And they're trying to say, well, in those places where it's all capitalized, that was actually the name God chose for himself, which is, I am who I am, or Yahweh. Okay, as almost as silent as a breath. And uh, I guess and somebody else said, well, Abba is sort of like the first thing a baby will, know, will say, like Papa, like Dada. And said, so you could, you could say daddy or dad. And I thought, well, daddy's a little too trite. Dad works. My own relationship with my father was really good, so I could go there. But not quite. Um, my grandfathers were Opa and Grandpa, so Papa was available. And uh, to me, it just conveys both the... Well, see, I wrote this down nicely again. So... Um, yeah, so Abba was the Aramaic equivalent of Dada, but a name slash title which grew with the age of the child to be a term of absolute respect and submission coupled with absolute affection and intimacy. Um, so it's felt right to say it. It was a suitable picture, no matter how smart, no matter how grown up, no matter with it, together I look. Mm. I'm always going to be his kid, and he's always going to be Papa. And whatever we do, whether it's well done or poorly done, whether it pleases him or not, we're his kids. Mm -hmm. we're, he's, he's our papa. Sure. And uh, that seems like the right focus to keep going. I, I, uh, I love the fact that you call God papa because I think it, it, it really shows you have a, a relationship of intimacy with God. You have a relationship with God and you've sought to be connected with him and you've tried a lot of things. Tell, tell us about some of the, the daily rhythms that you've, you've sought to cultivate that have helped you stay connected with God. So for one thing, some of this was a lot easier to do when I had more control over my schedule. So when I was a young man, unmarried, not a father. Um, as you get older, the more commitments you have, the tougher it is to do. So when I, was, you know, when I was a kid, I could spend the whole bus ride from Abbotsford to Vancouver reading the Bible, one direction and the other direction. I went through the Bible a couple times that way. 
I ran a regular treadmill of doing the Psalms, five Psalms a day in the morning and one chapter of Proverbs in the evening. And it works really well because 30 times five is a 150. So you just take the date of the, the number of the date and add 30 until you get past the end of the Psalms and you stop for the morning. That's way too complicated for us no, non-math not. You just got to save 119 for the 31st because it's Next, too long. Next, you're going to say the square root of, you know, is, and then you... We'll leave that aside. Yeah, okay. Um, when we were in Britain in, in two, 1991, not 1990, it's the fall of 1990, and again in 2002, 2002, one of the things that struck me is you, you go through the churches and the clocks go off, okay? And you're visiting Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's, and they'll say, okay, guys, this isn't just an amazing historical place. It's a place of worship. So can we stop? And it would have us all say the Lord's Prayer together. And I found it really, really centering. Now, that's something I can do at work. I have, you have your clock, okay? Anybody have a desktop background on their, on their Windows computer? Okay? Anybody have a collection of my favorite crazy cats or, or, or nature scenes? We can select a whole row of them and have them change every hour randomly. And when you see the desktop background change, you say, oh, it's time. You just bow your head for 30 seconds or less. Our Father who is in heaven. Because it's about becoming more, as natural as breathing. Mm. And mm. it's amazing. Kierkegaard didn't have the internet, and he said it's too much noise. Okay? Mm. What we have is oh. too much noise. Yeah. Okay? I don't have what could be called a daily office. I, I'm embarrassed to be brought up here because I don't have a schedule like this. Mm. But what I have got is this has to become, this has had to become for me as natural as breathing. Uh, there's a Matt Redmond song where the chorus goes, Breathing in your grace and breathing out your praise forever. And that's, that's the way it works for me, okay? Mm, I love it. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you, um, you, try, have a, you and Sandra have incorporated one particular practice that has helped bring some rhythm to your yeah. family yeah. in terms of every day. I mean, tell us about that practice. Yeah, sure. Okay, so a friend of mine um, went over to Rome, and it really challenged me uh, a lot. And one of the things, one of the areas that it challenged me in was we don't do this, we don't do the Eucharist often enough. We don't do communion often enough, okay? I grew up in a church that does it about once a month. We do it a little more often here, but not much more. Uh, my mom grew up in a church that does it once a year. And it came to my mind that once a week wasn't enough. And then I thought, you know, and actually say, well, they, had, they went breaking bread house to house. So I've gone way out on a limb in a practical expre expression of the priesthood of all believers, and we'll have a cracker and we'll have a drink at the table, and we'll celebrate communion as part of grace, okay? Um, I think we've managed to keep it from being trite. You could ask the boys, ask the guys. They're not boys anymore, they're young men. But it's as simple as, you know, you, you thank God for the food, you thank God for the one who prepared it, because she's usually working her butts up, butt off with uh, little or no thanks for it. And you stop and say thanks that our real nourishment comes from your body, our real sustenance, our real satisfaction comes from your blood. And even if it's only the first drink, you know, the, the, maybe take the first fork full of potato and, you know, in remembrance of your, of your body broken for us. And even if it's as simple as raising the glass first and say, to the risen Lord, uh, and like a toast. And we, any of us can do that, okay? Mm -hmm. After that, use scripture in your imagination. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of these things running around our family. Right. Well, call and response. The response to, to the risen Lord is to the new creation. Mm. Anyways. That's great. Let's uh, give uh, Arthur a huge hand. Thank you, Arthur. That's great. I, uh, I love that he said, I, I'm embarrassed to be brought up here. 
um, because I don't have it quite like, like the rule book says we're supposed to have it or whatever. The whole point of this is that we develop a rhythm. And it, it's a rhythm that's going to look unique for each of us. But the church, there, there's, there's resources that help us with this. And, and I would encourage you to avail yourself of those and to consider how you might do that. Uh, again, I, I think they need to include this, these two components of, of silence and, and solitude and Scripture. Those two parts. You notice how reading Psalms and reading a proverb and, and, and having Scripture permeate through his life. Praying the Lord's Prayer, maybe even on an hourly basis as your screensaver changes. What a practical uh, response I think that is. Um, I want to invite Lincoln up right now. We're going to pause and practice this discipline of silence right now. And we, even though we've gone a little bit over time, we're not going to be rushed about this.